This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for March 18th, 2019. There are lots of thinkers out there who want to rebuild the fabric of our society, but not many of them actually want to rebuild in a different way the fabric of our society, as in the towns and cities, the buildings and the roads. But in this show, I talk to someone who does. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. And coming up for you in this podcast, a startlingly high number of young men have not worked a single day in the past year. Are you saying that this particular problem could be addressed by changing the way we build cities? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm saying that it's difficult to get started when rents are extremely high. And so, first of all, the percentage of people who are rent burdened across the country is increasing at an alarming rate. So this is a nationwide problem. That's coming up in a minute. But first, I want to thank all of my donors on Patreon. I really appreciate everyone who contributes. If you don't know, Patreon is basically a system that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month. And that helps me to devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. If you think that you could do the same, there's details on the website and at the end of this show. On October 29th last year, Lion Air Flight 610 in Indonesia crashed, killing all 189 people on board. On March 10th of this year, Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 crashed, killing all 157 passengers and crew. Both planes were brand new Boeing 737 MAX 8s. In the days since the second crash, aviation authorities in countries starting with China and finishing with the United States on March 13th have grounded all of this type of aircraft. This is remarkable, not only because these are newly delivered planes, they're a brand new model. There are less than 400 of this type of aircraft around the world. The first one was delivered less than two years ago. Boeing has an order book of nearly 5,000 more, but I wouldn't be counting on that now if I were them. This could be just an unfortunate coincidence, but the fact that the two tragedies had similarities in the way that the aircraft crashed is worrying, as is the fact that during 2018, at least two pilots reported problems that could be related to what happened when they were flying this model. It's notable that the government-ordered groundings began in China and that the US was the last holdout, which looks like some political or national pride issues are in play here, as well as a concern for safety. So there's no guarantee that this decision-making process is driven just by rationality. But if we look at the risks in other transport and compare it to airlines, all rationality goes out the window. You could look at road traffic accident statistics and see a huge improvement, and you'd be right. 
There is some difficulty in measuring things here because we're looking at death rates changing over time when a lot of other things are changing too. Populations are going up, the number of cars is going up, and the amount we use them is going up. So if you saw an increase in fatalities, it could be just because of more driving, not because driving is any more dangerous. But we don't see an increase in fatalities. We see a huge decline. 50 years ago, in 1969, there were more than 53,000 deaths on American roads. In 2017, the last year we have statistics for, there were 37,000 deaths. That seems like a good improvement, down from 53,000 to 37,000, a 30% drop. But that only tells half the tale. The population shot up in that time, so the death rate actually went down from 26 per 100,000 to 11 per 100,000. So the death rate more than halved. All those airbags, seatbelts, driver ed courses, anti-drunk driving measures, anti-lock brakes and so on have sure made a difference. But that still doesn't tell the whole story because the amount of driving has increased. A true measure of the risk is the number of fatalities per 100 million miles travelled. That figure has been falling like a stone. It's gone from 5 in 1969 to slightly over 1 death per 100 million miles travelled now. So driving now is 5 times safer than it was 50 years ago. And the improvement stretches back in a straight line for almost a century. In 1920, there were more than 20 deaths for every 100 million miles travelled. Driving now is much more than 20 times safer. So that's all good news, right? Sort of. But look at the speed of reaction around the world to just the suspicion of a dangerous aircraft. Nearly 400 planes grounded, about $50 billion worth of aircraft. Now they're sitting there doing nothing, and will be for months. Think of the cost of that. And consider this. After that huge decline in the danger of driving, a non-stop century of cars getting safer and safer, at the end of that century of improvement, driving is still eight times more dangerous than flying and we don't see the president giving a press conference ordering cars off the road. We have a huge cognitive bias about the relative safety of cars. It comes, I think, from the fact that people prefer risks when they feel in control. People trust their own driving more than they trust a trained pilot's flying. The stats prove that they're flat wrong, but they just can't believe it. And one other thing, as well as saving lives, all those airbags and seatbelts have been costing lives too. Years ago, most road fatalities were the occupants of cars, but as the safety measures were introduced, some of that safety benefit was consumed not as lower deaths, but as riskier driving. That's fine for the people in the car protected by the crush bars and the rollover cages, but that just moved the risk outside the car. Pedestrians and cyclists are making up a much higher proportion of road fatalities now. 
all risk is not equal. It's one thing to say, I want to get there faster, so I'll take a risk and hit the gas. That's my life. But it's another thing to say, I can hit the gas without fear because I'm protected by airbags and impact bars, so I'll be safe if I hit something or someone. People might not say those things out loud, but the statistics shows that's what's happening. If we have an excess of caution in the airline industry, perhaps we should move some of that spare caution into the driver's seat on the roads. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. Kathy Reisenwitz is a writer whose work has appeared in The Week, Forbes, The Daily Beast, Vice Motherboard, Reason Magazine, Talking Points Memo, and others. And she's appeared as a commentator on Fox News and Al Jazeera, which is an interesting combination, to say the least. And uh, Kathy, you were writing a little while back about living in different cities, and one sentence really jumped out at me. And I'll read you the sentence. It says, being within walking distance of friends has made me much more social than I was when visiting required driving. It feels so much more human to pass by strangers while walking than feeling frustrated that their steel cage was keeping my steel cage from going as fast as I wanted it to. Um, Kathy, you, most of your writing is in maybe right-leaning outlets, but you're sounding like a hippie there, are you? <laughs> yeah, I've become more of a hippie as I've gotten older, which is not the usual progression. No, it's not. No. T- tell me what, what motivated you to write this article. I don't know. I think that it was when I first started writing about land use, I'd been writing about kind of libertarian topics for, Mm -hmm. you know, five years at that point. Mm -hmm. I really started to focus then on land use and people wanted to know, like, why? Like, why are you focused on land use? What got you interested in it? And so I wanted to kind of think through the question by writing it out. And I realized it was kind of a confluence of both like what land use means as far as my other interests, which are like social justice and um, economic growth. Mm -hmm. Um, And then what it means to me is like, you know, how I discovered my love of cities and how being in an urban environment has changed my life for the better and how I want to extend that opportunity to everyone. Okay, I can see, I understand what you're saying, but I can see how many people would say, what does it matter? You live in a house, you live in an apartment, it doesn't make any difference. What what difference do you think it makes? Well, there's my experience, which is, you know, as I wrote that I became a lot less frustrated and scared and lonely and felt like my time was being wasted. Like I can't even, it's hard to articulate how much more pleasant it is um, to walk places rather than drive there. Um, But interestingly, it's also borne out by the research. A long commute uh, in your car is associated with everything from early mortality to obesity to a higher likelihood of divorce to depression to anxiety. Um, Driving everywhere is just terrible for us socially, emotionally, and physically. And so, you know, if people were simply just choosing to live far away from everything they need to do and be car bound, Mm -hmm. that would be one thing. But America has set up a lot of incentives um, for that lifestyle. And it's it's just a really problematic situation that we've made living in a way that 
empirically is shown to be better for us, more expensive than it needs to be, and we've subsidized living in a way that's pretty uh, empirically shown to be terrible for us. Okay. You, you said set up something that seems to be terrible and lots of people do things that are objectively terrible. People smoke cigarettes, people do all sorts of things, but maybe they, they like it. But you're saying that this is being subsidized and that gives the impression that it's being pushed on us by government. How, how is it being subsidized? Yeah, I mean, it's being subsidized in a lot of different ways. So like, for example, um, it's being kind of forced on us through zoning. So uh, a lot of America is zoned for single family homes only, which mm -hmm. obviously, you know, pushes people into car bound lifestyles. Because how, 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 so, how so explain that for people who don't know? Sorry. Yeah. So single family zoning means um, a patch of land. The only thing that you can build on it is a single family home. So, so and one so, house with a two car garage and uh, a yard out front and out back and a lot of space for each individual family as opposed to maybe an apartment block where the same amount of space would house far more people. Exactly. And yes, um, as you alluded to, some of the zoning will even uh, mandate how much parking each family home has to have and how much uh, uh, of a yard it has to have and how far it has to be set back from the road and uh, how close the houses can be to each other. And so what all of this does is it mandates sprawl. It means that you you are not legally allowed to to build and live densely, and so obviously it's much harder to walk places if you know the the dwellings are are spread out um, from each other, and mm -hmm. then it's also more difficult to walk places when zoning separates homes from businesses, and so. That's just one example. Another example would be, you know, taxing people, taxing everyone, drivers and non-drivers alike to build roads and maintain roads, um, whereas you're, you're charging people for using transit. So transit riders are, in a sense, paying twice. Wait, wait, um, wait, wait, wait. Now, what are you saying that this great American car economy, that this is some sort of this is some sort of communism? <laughs> yes, actually, drivers are welfare queens. Explain. Oh, just just what I was saying about how you know everyone is being is being taxed um, to to fund the roads and to okay, fund so, the, so basically, the road maintenance. if you drive and I walk, we both have to say, we both have to pay the same amount of tax towards upkeeping the road. Although you are consuming far more of that 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 resource than I am, is essentially what you're saying. Yeah, so that's for walkers and people, you know, who might bike. Um, mm -hmm. But for people who take transit, they're actually paying twice. So they have to pay for the road, um, even though they're not, uh, you know, tearing it up or or even, you know, taking advantage of it. Mm -hmm. um, but then they also have to pay every time they ride transit. So, yeah, that's another example. And there's one other thing that you mentioned, which I thought was very interesting. You're essentially talking about young un or underemployed males, particularly living at home in the outer suburbs. What's the economic effect of that that you're seeing? 
Yeah, it's just um, something that we don't talk about very much in America is the fact that a huge percentage of young men um, age like 18 to 35 are not in the workforce and they're not in education either. They're just literally like like sitting out of um, productive Tony activity. Blair's Tony Blair's government in Britain around the turn of the century, they coined a phrase which I think has become an internet meme in some circles ever since. And the word is NEAT, N-W-E-T, meaning not in employment, education or training. Are you essentially saying that these need, and this is a significant, I, I will look up the exact number, but a startlingly high number of young men have not worked a single day in the past year. Are you saying that this particular problem could be addressed by changing the way we build cities? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm saying that it's difficult to get started when rents are extremely high. And so, first of all, the percentage of people who are rent burdened across the country is increasing at an alarming rate. So this is a nationwide problem. Um, it's especially acute in cities where uh, jobs are in highest availability. So places like D.C., New York, San Francisco, um, any kind of city that's got a growing economy um, mm -hmm. also has extremely high rent prices, which mm -hmm. means that you can't, it used to be that you could move to a city, um, you know, get a, a job just starting out, you know, you could start at the bottom and work your way up. The problem is that the jobs at the bottom do not pay enough to afford rent in the cities. And so, you know, the only people who are moving to cities like San Francisco are already qualified to make $100,000. They're guys that either already have computer science degrees or already have coding experience. And so they can start making those uh, salaries immediately and can afford rent. But if you want to learn how to code, mm -hmm. if you want to learn on the job, if you want to start, you know, by... Um, you know, working part time coding and, you know, being a barista the rest of the time, like how people used to uh, experience upward mobility, mm -hmm. you can't afford to do that because the rent is just too high. And the rent is too high is because we've artificially uh, limited supply of housing in our cities by the single family zoning, by discretionary review for permitting, um, height restrictions and other means to keep property values high and poor people out of our neighborhoods, um, we've created a situation in which it's very difficult for people to move to areas of opportunity. And in fact, um, the rate at which people are moving for jobs is lower in America today than it's been in the past 50 years. We have fewer people moving to where the jobs are. And I think a large part of the reason for that is because people know that they can't afford to get started. Okay. That's the economic argument. Give me the social argument. Oh, uh, well, I would just say that like... And you're not you going to get arrested there, are you? Uh, who knows? <laughs> I can hear uh, sirens gotta... in the background. Hopefully our listeners won't be too offended by that. But until you get arrested, give me, give me the, uh, the, social, the social reason. Hashtag urbanism, hashtag yes. density. Um, yeah, uh, let me check for plastic straws. Um, you know, I think I'm going to be fine. So yeah, I think the social argument is that um, it's just sad. I mean, it's sad to not be there's a tremendous personal satisfaction in work and productive endeavors. And um, I think the part of the reason that you're seeing millennials uh, 
delay or forego sex, marriage, uh, having kids, and these kinds of things is because they don't have the economic opportunity to be able to afford to do those things. And so, you know, hang on, hang on, sex is free. Why can't they afford that? Well, dating is not free. Uh, um, uh, it depends on what gender you are, maybe. Um, but <laughs> uh, but but I, I think maybe if I was to sum it up, and you can tell me whether you agree or not, moving yourself into a location where you have interaction with a high number of people, which is what younger people traditionally liked and which perhaps is useful for creating opportunities for various social and other activities, that's becoming impossible. The people, young people can't move out of their parents' homes. Their parents typically live in low density, uh, low density suburbs. And unless you have a car, which often they don't, you don't meet that very many people because there's not that many people within walking distance. And if you do have a car, you don't really meet that many people just as you're going down the street because you can't interact with them. Well, I think that there's some of that, but I think it's more that, okay, like, let's say you, you know, borrow your parents' car and go to the bar and meet a woman. And she goes, oh, you know, tell me about yourself. And you Uh say, well, not in education, not employed, not in training. Um, I don't produce anything of value uh, and I don't have any money. You want to come back to my mom's place? Like that's not, <laughs> that's not a really compelling argument. And so I do think that economic, um, you know, uh, deprivation is definitely getting in the way of millennials ability to date because it's just like sad. Um, and I think that these men, you know, probably don't feel confident and they probably shouldn't like, <laughs> you know, but it's, uh, I, but I don't want to blame the victim here. Like we need to set up society in such a way that we're not keeping men, young men out of opportunity to, to boost boomers property prices. Like that is, that is the system that we've got set up. It's essentially a wealth transfer from young poor people to rich old people. And it's bull crap. Like it's really problematic and we can see the effects of it in the choices millennials are making. Kathy, this podcast is called Challenging Opinions. And I try always to take the opposite point of view to tease out my guests' opinions. And sometimes that's harder than others, and particularly with you, because I agree with everything you said. And I think you're, <laughs> you're, you're really right. However, I agree with everything you said about describing the problem. But you come, I think, very much from a liberal, particularly writing for Reason.com, come from a libertarian background. And one thing that you said in the article was that restrictive zoning laws are a lot of what's setting that up. And that may well be true, but the reality is that cities that do what you're saying, you know, do the thing that you would like them to do and get it right, typically have very restrictive zoning. They just zone in a different way. And places that have no zoning at all tend to end up in just complete urban sprawl. Isn't it true that you, when you, and you say, I oppose zoning, but isn't it true that zoning is the only thing that can fix this? I don't think that zoning is necessary. I think that the reason for, uh, first of all, there's, there aren't very many examples of, uh, cities that don't zone. So it's, it's really difficult to make that comparison. Um, you do have cities, a few cities with pretty unrestrictive zoning and they do like Houston, obviously is like the go-to example. Mm -hmm. It's a horrible sprawl, but 
you have to take into consideration that uh, that sprawl is again for the reasons that we've we've some of the reasons that we've talked about like subsidization sprawl is cheaper than density all else being equal and so if you don't have geographic mm-hmm. um limitations like for example sf is just you know geographically small dc is geographically small um manhattan is geographically small it's geographically wait no, wait no wait no just clarify what you said you said that sprawl is cheaper than density cheaper for who developers. Okay. So yeah. So it's cheaper just to get an empty dirt lot that's the next acre out from the center of Houston or whatever and to build your next development on that. It's much more expensive and much more difficult and there tends to be legal difficulties and difficulties with uh, amenities and so forth to find a site right in the middle of a city and build a high density development in that that's what you're saying with that yeah so what i'm saying is that if land is cheap mm-hmm. and and so the only cost that you're taking into consideration is the cost of actual building then sprawl is cheaper mm-hmm. because it's it's cheaper to build three homes side by side than three homes on top of each other just because it's it's just difficult like you need stronger materials yeah. um and yada yada to build up what changes the equation is the cost of land mm-hmm. so if land is expensive because it's in limited supply relative to demand mm-hmm. then it becomes cheaper to to build up surely that's why you create that scarcity with zoning you say any place that's more than x miles out from the center of the city that's going to stay green space you've got you create that density as has been art perhaps naturally created in san francisco as you mentioned and possibly also in dc and you get a really quite a livable result surely it's possible to recreate that even in houston with uh, with just good zoning it's theoretically possible to do what you're saying the problem is the special interest problem the problem mm-hmm. is that there's very little lobby for good zoning. There's very little incentive for anyone to show up at city council meetings, uh, campaign for city council people, um, and all that to to basically incentivize, you know, green space and density. What there is extremely like tons of uh, demand for in the way that the democratic process actually works is for homeowners to lobby for zoning that protects their property values. Mm -hmm. And so if you could somehow fix democracy, then zoning, I think, could be a a perfectly good way to achieve urbanist aims. Mm -hmm. But because democracy is captured by the people who have the time, money, savvy, and resources um, to get it to work for them. And those people people are predominantly older, uh, wealthier, um, disproportionately white homeowners. Mm-hmm. Then what you're going to see through the zoning process is zoning that benefits them to the detriment of everyone else. What do you think? Uh, I know you've told me that you've uh, visited cities in Europe. What do you think of the contrast between those and the typical American city? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I love about like, um, you know, Belgium and Berlin to a lesser extent, but um, yeah, like Italy, is that there are cities that were set up before 
the car became there there are cities that were not designed around the car there are cities that were designed around the human and so they're human scaled you know they're walkable they're dense um and it's just like a much more uh you know pleasant like it's it's they're pleasant to look at um, they're designed to be looked at. They're designed to be walked around. They're not designed to be sped through uh, on in a car. And I think that's just a much better way to live. And yet they have zoning that's so restrictive, uh, no American would ever believe. Yeah, I don't know a lot about European zoning, to be honest with you. Oh, oh I'm telling you, I do. And <laughs> quite, quite literally, they tell you what day you can hang out your washing. <laughs> Well, see, and they're usually they're hanging their washing instead of drying it. So that's just another example where urbanism is more uh, economically, I mean, sorry, uh, ecologically efficient. <laughs> no, but now that's another thing that I think is underappreciated is that when you design around walking and other non-car forms mm -hmm. of getting around, then that's so much better for the environment. Um, it's so much less carbon emissions. To end on a tragic note, um, this is something that's incredibly difficult to change, isn't it, Kathy? That, uh, you know, you mentioned a couple of cities in the US that are perhaps more walkable and uh, more uh, possible to live in the centre, as, as you said, was uh, a pleasant thing to do. But the great majority of the US is nothing like that. And even with the best will in the world, if you had incredibly enlightened politicians doing incredibly enlightened zoning starting tomorrow, it would take centuries to achieve anything significant, wouldn't it? I don't think so. No, not at all. There is so much of San Francisco, D.C. and Manhattan, less so in Manhattan, but certainly in, in a lot of our large cities, tons and tons of opportunity to build up. We could build up. We could, I mean, San Francisco is... Um, sure, yeah, but outside those like coastal urban elite cities, if I was to use that, in the places that most Americans live, which are in the suburbs and in the cities between the coasts, there's just no way that 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 can ever be achieved, is there? There's no reason for it to be. We need to build up the cities where the jobs are and then the people who are in the places that don't have a lot of opportunity can move to where the opportunity is. That's what America has always done. That's what America needs to continue to do. That's what we need to make possible again. Kathy Reisenwitz, writer and libertarian and urbanist enthusiast, thank you very much for talking to me. Thanks for having me. Make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com to set out your ideas and defend them on the next podcast. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, and follow Kathy Reisenwitz at Kathy Reisenwitz. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Also, thanks to everyone who signed up as patrons on Patreon so far. I really appreciate that. It means that I can devote more time to researching and finding interesting guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, you'll find the link on the website. You can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. And it's all at www.challengingopinions.com. 
Coming up next Monday, that's March 25th, I'll be talking to the former high school teacher and current university professor Mitchell Robinson of the Eclectoblog website about education reform. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. <laughs>